Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation chapter 14, looking at verses 1 through 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1036. I've entitled today's message, Victory Song. And as always, I'll begin in a word of prayer. And then we'll consider it together. Let's bow for prayer. Our Lord, we do thank you so much for another day to gather and worship you. We thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to engage with your word today. Please help our minds to be alert to its teachings and give us an eagerness to apply it to our lives. Lord, this time is yours and we ask that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, as you know, much of Revelation is taken up with very dark themes, and yet we also have these, these bursts of light that come at regular intervals. And the purpose of these bursts of light is to fill us with hope, okay, to give us hope in the midst of the darkness. And today's passage is another one of those bright texts, again, Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Now, if you are here for chapter 13, you know the dark themes that we've just covered. We were looking at some details related to the coming Great Tribulation period. We saw the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet and how these two men will be empowered by the devil himself, giving us something of an unholy trinity in this future age. We saw how God's people are going to be greatly persecuted during that time period, all very, very dark and, and even depressing to consider. But now we come to the opening verses of chapter 14, and what happens here is, a, is we're given a ray of hope. The Apostle John fast-forwards through the entire tribulation period, and he shows us the end result of it all. What he shows us will be a great encouragement to all of us, and what he is going to explain is that Christ does win in the end. He wins in the end. See, the great tribulation will come to a close as Christ returns to earth, breaking into human history once again, dissolving the kingdom of Antichrist, establishing his own kingdom of righteousness on the globe. And he will rule and reign forever and ever, and we will be right there reigning with him. The big takeaway of today's text is the following, that, friends, no matter how dark the world may seem to us at any given moment, no matter how dark it may seem to us, we must never live our lives as a defeated people. And that's because God is still there. And he's still sovereign over all things. And he has appointed a day when his son will return. His son will dissolve the godless kingdoms of this world. He will establish his own kingdom on this earth. And we will be right there with him. And so, friends, we have no need to live as a defeated people. We ought to live as a people who are on the winning side of history. Let's see this together now from our text. Beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, the Apostle John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Let's pause right there. You'll immediately notice that we have fast-forwarded through the Great Tribulation. Now we're looking at the conclusion of all of that. And who is the last man standing at the end of that tribulation? Well, it isn't the Antichrist, is it? 
And it isn't the false prophet, and it isn't the devil. The last man standing is Christ. It is Christ. And you'll notice the title given to Christ here. He is called the Lamb. Now, what a a great contrast between that title and the titles given to the Antichrist and the false prophet and the devil. Remember, they were called beasts. The devil was called the dragon. How are they defeated? Well, they're not defeated by a greater monster. No, they're defeated by a lamb. One who is meek and gentle and pure and holy. One who did not take lives, but one who gave his life that his people might be redeemed. This is the great conqueror. You notice the lamb's posture on Mount Zion. It says he, he stood there on the mount. This is the posture of victory. He has conquered all of his foes, and now he is ready to reign. So, friends, as we have considered this this coming time known as the Great Tribulation, we've seen all of the darkness of that time. We see here that it does not end in darkness. It ends in brilliant light. It ends with our Lord Jesus himself coming back to earth, stepping on Mount Zion, And they're ready to take up his kingdom. And friends, one day this scene will be a reality. Christ will come. He will set his foot on that mount. He will receive his kingdom. When that day finally comes, it will be the fulfillment of promises going back to the very dawning of time. It'll be a glorious day. And friends, here's the really exciting thing about that coming day. It's that all of his people, and that includes us too, all of his people will be there to enjoy his victory with him. Look with me now at the second part of verse 1. John writes again, I looked, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now he adds this, and with him, with him, 145,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we learned about these 144,000 back in chapter 7. Remember, we learned these were ethnic Israelites. God will save them during the tribulation period. God will put his mark on their foreheads. This will distinguish them from the multitudes who receive the mark of the Antichrist. God will save them, he will mark them, and then he will send them out into the world as evangelists. Their primary mission, to facilitate the mass conversion of God's ancient people, the Israelite people, preparing to reconstitute that nation. But many, many others will also be saved. These evangelists will be given an extremely challenging task. They are called to be bold witnesses for Christ in the most challenging period of world history. This coming time when the Antichrist will have a kingdom that stretches over all of the continents and will be aided by the false prophet who requires the worship of Antichrist. Time of tremendous persecution of God's people. Yet this is the time that these 144,000 will be called to minister They will be hounded and hunted, abused and mistreated. But look here in chapter 14, not one of them will be lost. 
Here they are, 144,000 called and sealed in chapter 7, now standing with the victorious Lamb in chapter 14. Not even one of them has been lost. The point, friends, is that God never leaves or forsakes his people. God never breaks his promises to them. And it will be true of them, and it will be true of every last one of us. All of God's people from every era of world history, if they are his, he will hold them, he will keep them, he will reign with them one day. We read John chapter 6 earlier in the service. Allow me to reread a portion of that passage. These are the words of Jesus. He says, All that the Father gives to me, and notice the word all, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Then he explains the reason why. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. And now for emphasis, our Lord repeats himself. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My friends, God keeps his promises, and we see that here in Revelation 14. God sealed the 144,000, and now every last one of them has come through the darkest year of history, and they're standing with the Lamb in victory. You can be sure that the same will be true of you. If God has saved you, He has put His seal on you, His own Holy Spirit, a seal on you. And He will hold you fast right on through to the end of time. If your body should fail before our Lord's return, he will give you a new body on that great day. And in the meantime, your soul will be in his presence. God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his people. And my friends, it is to God's everlasting praise that he is so. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me now. John goes on. He says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Verse 3, And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. We'll pause there. So the Lamb and his 144,000 and all of his resurrected and redeemed peoples, they are on the earth. Saw that, verse 1. But we notice here that they can hear a song that's being sung in heaven. It's an extremely loud song, comparable to ocean waves and to thunder claps. It's also a very beautiful song. They hear the sounds of harps. And isn't this an interesting juxtaposition of, of terms? A, a song that's like ocean waves, like thunder claps, but it's also like harps all at the same time. It is a sound unlike anything anyone has heard before. And it's a congregational song. The music is accompanied with multitudes that are singing. And and who are these multitudes? Well, of course, it's the angels of heaven. Millions and millions of angelic beings all populating the heavenly realm. They are singing this song And it's a new song. That means it's a song composed 
just for this occasion, because after all, it is a momentous day. Christ has come. He's left heaven. He's come to earth. He is standing on Mount Zion. He's got his redeemed with him. This is the biggest day in earth history. It's a day that calls for a new song, and so the angels sing a new song. The song's directed toward God's throne room, Because this victory is God's doing, and he alone deserves the praise for it. The text tells us that God will hear their song. And the four living creatures who surround God's throne, we learned about them in the early chapters of Revelation, they'll hear the song too. The 24 elders gathered around the throne, the ones we learned about in chapter 4, they will hear the song as well. And all the redeemed on earth will be permitted to hear it too. And all together, the angels in heaven and the redeemed on earth, they will all be praising God for his magnificent victory. The kingdom of Antichrist is gone. The false prophet is gone. His kingdom is being established. You know, friends, some events so stir the soul, the only way to express the feeling is in song. In fact, that's why I believe God gave us the gift of music. It's because some events so stir the emotions that it's not enough just to talk about it with people. We have to set it to a tune. We have to sing about what we're feeling inside. He gives us music to express our affections. And so here on this great day, the only thing that will do the emotions of the day justice is a new song sung by angels joined in by the redeemed Now we come to the second part of verse 3. Here John says something very interesting to us. He says, But no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Now John is not saying that nobody else could understand the tune or, or make sense of the words. No, he's talking about something different here. He's saying everybody hears the music. They all understand the words of the song. Perhaps they're all even joining in this great song. But this group, this 144,000, they are the only ones who can fully appreciate the significance of the song. John's using the word learn in that sense in this verse. Why would that be? Well, again, let's remember who these 144,000 will be. They will be ethnic Israelites. Their ancestors were the recipients of God's ancient covenants. The faithful among them had been yearning to see the fulfillment of all of these covenants for millennia. At times it seemed like those covenants would never be fulfilled. So many times in, in Israelite history, the people wandered off into idol worship. So many times foreign powers had come in and scattered the people. Or think of the Great Tribulation period, the time when these 144,000 will be ministering. This will be the darkest period in their history. Israelites scattered all over the world, Antichrist greatly persecuting God's people. It will be a very, very dark day. And yet, here they are now. They will be standing there on Mount Zion. That's in the land of Israel. Standing there on Mount Zion, all 144,000 preserved through it all. And all of the redeemed, those that they reached, 
with the gospel of Christ. And many others all now standing there worshiping God and the Lamb for their great victories. Friends, no doubt you and I will have a rush of emotion on that day as well as we look and see all the unrighteous kingdoms of the world have been laid aside And now Christ has come, our Messiah too, and He is establishing His kingdom. Our emotions will be great. But friends, it will also be uniquely precious for these, these who lived in the darkest era, these who get to see the fulfillment of all of God's covenants fulfilled to them. It's going to be very, very precious for them. Now we go on to verses 4 and 5. These describe the character of the 144,000. This further contributes to our understanding of of why the song is so uniquely precious to them. But as we we look at the description of, of these evangelists, understand we're also learning something about the responsibilities God gives to all of his people in all ages. Look at this description of the 144,000. Verse 4. John writes, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. In other words, God had called them to salvation and then deployed them as his evangelists in the Great Tribulation while they were yet virgins. And it says they remain such for the entirety of their ministries. This speaks to their singular devotion to the cause of Christ. They did not allow anything to distract them from the mission Christ had given to them. They were called in singleness, and throughout their time of ministry, they remained in singleness. They did not get turned aside by lust. They did not even get turned aside by good things like marriage and having kids and establishing households. Those are good things, but in this era of history and with the calling that God uh, gives to them, it just wasn't for them. To build families. No, they were called to be evangelists and they fulfilled their ministry. Absolute, singular devotion to the cause. And then it goes on. And it says, And it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Again, a statement of singular devotion. God's calling on their life was absolute, and they followed in lockstep behind him. Every demand that he made, they followed. Everywhere he told them to go, that's where they went. And then the next phrase, And these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And I think in this particular context, that means that they were, were offerings consecrated to God. God had had saved them, he had a special task for them, and their lives were consecrated sacrifices for him, like the the first fruits that were offered to God in the Old Testament days. And then it goes on still, and it says, And in their mouths no lie was found. Remarkable statement given the time in which they will live. A time when truth will be suppressed and the lies will be elevated, a time when all people will be compelled to say, Antichrist is Lord. A time when good is called evil and evil is called good. And yet these 144,000, they will stand for the truth. They will be people of truth. 
They'll not, they'll not succumb to the fear of man. They will be absolutely dedicated to God. And so then we have that great summary statement at the end of verse 5. They are blameless. Blameless. Absolute dedication to the cause of Christ. They will be evangelists of the highest caliber. They will not fear the consequences of their bold witness. They will not turn aside and succumb to any sin or even any good thing that they simply don't have time for. Their mind will be focused on their mission. Blameless people. Friends, though we are living in a, uh, we are a different people, living in a different time in history, yet our responsibilities are not fundamentally different from theirs. Friends, God would have us to offer our lives as consecrated disciples as well. Just like God called them to integrity, God calls us now to be people of integrity. He calls us to be men and women who reject the temptations of sin and to follow with wholehearted obedience to him and his cause. He calls us all today to follow in lockstep behind Christ. We know the will of Christ for our lives. It's recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. God would have us to follow his instructions. God would have us to be faithful to the tasks that he has assigned us today, which for us means, for the majority at least, Growing up, getting married, establishing families, having kids, raising our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and building local churches, and being witnesses. It means fulfilling the Great Commission, going out, making more disciples of all the nations, and baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ has said. And he calls us also to be men and women and children of truth. To look at the lies around us as they are, as really lies, to refuse to cave to the lies, to be men and women who believe the truth, live by the truth, teach and preach the truth. He calls us to be blameless before him as well. Now, friends, I understand that we are living in difficult times. They're hard times to be sure. It's hard to live righteously in a society that values depravity. It's hard to be a person of truth when everyone around you is, is pressuring you to embrace lies, to compel you to reject what is objective reality in the name of love. And then to marginalize you and even legally sanction you if you will not. It is hard to live in these days. But my friends, I know that we can do it. By the grace of God, we can do it. And I know that we can because today's text shows us that one day there will be 144,000 evangelists who will live in the worst time in the history of the world and they will do it. By the grace of God, they will. And I know that the God who will give them the sufficient grace to persevere is the same God who lives today, and he can give us the grace we need to persevere. So I know that such a thing is possible for us. And I also know that we must. 
because there is a moral obligation upon every single one of us to bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to follow every last word that he has given to us. And friends, this is not a day for cowardice. Christ cannot use a cowardly disciple. No, these are days for bold disciples of Christ. God can give us the grace to be bold, and we must be bold. This is a day to be speaking the truth publicly without fear of consequence, because that is what the world needs from God's people. This is a day for God's people to stand up and live holy lives because the world needs to see what a holy life looks like. Because God is only glorified when his people reflect his character. No, friends, this is not a time to cower. This is a time to be courageous. And friends, with a hope like the one held out to us here in Revelation 14, how could we not be courageous? Unless, of course, our faith is just a faith of words not a faith that we have truly, truly embraced with our whole hearts. With promises like these, how could we not be bold to know, to know that in the end, our Lord wins. To know that we are actually the ones on the right side of history. To know that one day, all of the lies will be exposed for what they are and the truth will prevail. To know that one day, all sin will be put down. Only righteousness will stand. Friend, how could we not? How could we not stand in these days? Friends, when life gets difficult, remember this truth, that no matter how dark the world may seem, God is still there. He's going to keep his promises. Specifically, he is going to keep the promise he made to send his son back to earth in power and glory. And that he is going to send his son to put away all unrighteousness to establish his kingdom on the earth so that his will shall be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And he promises we will share in his victory. Friends, you are on the winning side. Now please go forth and live like that. Live like you are going to win. And with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the time that you've given to us. We thank you for this this passage, a, a burst of light in an otherwise dark portion of Revelation. And Lord, please help us to believe that your Son is going to come back. And that when he does, all that is that is opposed to you will be judged and put away and that your people will reign with you. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to anticipate the day when that new song is sung and we will feel that burst of emotion as as all that we have longed for has finally come true. Lord, help us to persevere in our faith in light of that. Lord, give us the grace that we need to persevere, for we know we cannot do it without you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.